millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kate Moss on her new novel, The Ghost Ship. Kate Moss is an award-winning novelist, playwright, essayist, and non-fiction writer. The author of 10 novels and short story collections, her books have been translated into 38 languages and published in more than 40 countries, and they include The Joubert Family Chronicles, the number one bestsellers, The Burning Chambers, The City of Tears, and The Ghost Ship, which is the book we're going to be talking about today. Kate is, of course, also the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction. She is a visiting professor of contemporary fiction and creative writing at the University of Chichester and president of the Festival of Chichester. Kate, welcome back to Little Atoms. Lovely to be back. So, as I said, this is the, the third book in a series of four books, The Ghost Ship, that we're going to talk about today. Although it, it completely stands alone as it's read one, doesn't have to have read the first two, which I have not, because you recap the characters and, and sort of what's happened in the narrative of this of this book. Um, but just indulge me and, and the audience and just recap for us slightly what the first two books were about. Yeah, it's a series of four novels that are set between 1562 and 1862 against the backdrop of the wars of religion in France and a group of uh, people called the Huguenots, which is simply the French name for their Protestants, who are persecuted within France and then go out from all over the world. And it's a Romeo and Juliet story, if you like, um, a Catholic family and a Protestant family. And I am following different generations of those families across the globe. So from France, Amsterdam, La Rochelle, the Canary Islands, and finally South Africa. And uh, each of the novels has um, an element, if you like. So The Burning Chambers is obviously fire. The City of Tears is, of course, water. And this one, The Ghost Ship, is air. And it, it is part of the series, but because it jumps forward a couple of generations and because it's a pirate novel, I deliberately wrote it to be a standalone so that people could start with this one if they wanted to. And it's been a complete joy to write. And I'm just getting, this is my very last event uh, for The Ghost Ship. Um, and then I'm going to be going back to my desk to write number four. So Minot and Piet, who were the um, protagonists of the earlier two books, do feature in this one. 
Um, so for anyone who has read the first two, tell us where we find them now. We find them in Paris in 1610. Anyone who's been kind enough to read my novels will know that I put imagined characters in front of the backdrop of real history. So I don't put my, my imagined words in the mouths of real people. My characters are all very much imagined. But the point about real history is that there are certain points which are turning points. And the idea that if something different had happened, if there'd been a different outcome, all of the history that followed would have been different. So Mino and Pied are in Paris in 1610 with their granddaughter, Louise. And Louise is there to get an inheritance and she's 25. And she will be transformed by this inheritance because it will mean that she will not have to marry because she will be a wealthy woman. So they are there and she is witness to an extraordinary moment in French history, which is the assassination of the great French king, Henry IV, Henri IV. And I don't think it's fanciful to say that if Henry IV had not been assassinated in May 1610, the French Revolution probably wouldn't have happened because he was a modernizing king. He understood that France needed the Protestants, needed the Huguenots because they were, they wouldn't have used the phrase then, but we would use it now. They were the middle class. They were the lawyers. They were the doctors. They were the engineers. They were the people who were working to make a living, not the aristocracy not the people who worked on the land. And because he was assassinated, the persecution of the Huguenots started up again under his son and then his grandson. And all of the Huguenots either were executed or they left France. And everywhere that they went, they transformed the societies. And because Holland, as it then was, took in so many Huguenot refugees, they became a global superpower. And France became a debt-ridden, collapsed country. So this was where I wanted to put my imaginary characters in front of this incredible moment in history. So this moment is, it's a pause in the persecution of the Huguenots in France. So tell us something, recap for us again, what had, what had happened to Huguenots in France, some of the events of which the previous two novels obviously cover. That period in Europe of uh, the Reformation, where many countries, England, as it then was, and then, of course, it becomes Britain, Scotland, Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands. Um, at that moment, it's Holland, and then it becomes the United Provinces and Italy. Spain, not so much. Spain has had its own reckoning a century earlier with the Spanish Inquisition and uh, doesn't really have a Protestant uh, moment in the same sort of way. But what is happening in the 16th century is that all the way through Europe, there is challenge to the Roman church, the Catholic church, and uh, a new church in many countries is happening. In England, of course, it's Henry VIII wanting to marry somebody else, but also be in charge of his own country. Same is happening in Scotland and many other countries. In France, the Huguenots are the, the Protestants there, and there is a, a very complicated power struggle going on. The wars of religion in France start in 1562. It is because uh, a particular person, Duke of Guise, opens fire on an unarmed Protestant congregation worshipping in the town of Vassy on the 1st of March, 1562. And they are allowed to be doing that and he slaughters many people. And that is the trigger for what will be 30 years of vicious, very, very destructive religious civil war in France, 
between the Catholics and the Protestants. Henry IV is a Protestant. He becomes a Catholic in order to be the King of France with the words, Paris is well worth a mass. And he is crowned as King of France, the first of the Bourbon dynasty after the collapse of the Valois dynasty in 1594. And my characters in the City of Tears are there to see his coronation. And he brings peace to France and he starts to restore France's prosperity because most people don't want to be at war with their neighbours. They are prepared to live and let live, uh, let people worship in their own way. But the people at the top want discord and they want division. And that is what happens when Henry IV is assassinated. You introduced Louise, Louise Radon Joubert, a little bit, but tell us a bit more about her, about who she is. Louise appears at the end of the City of Tears as a child. We don't really know much about her. When she appears in The Ghost Ship, we know that something quite significant and traumatic has happened in her childhood. She is a woman who does not want to live by the rules of the society of the time. She does not want to be owned by a husband or by societal rules. And she is carrying a great burden, but we don't know what it is. And actually, when I was writing the novel, I didn't know what it is either. You know, I was, I always write through the character to discover the story that's coming. And Louise wants more than anything to go to sea. But at this period of history, the early 17th century, this is the moment that Europe lifts its eyes from itself and looks to the rest of the world. It's the beginning of all the European nations becoming seafarers and going out into the rest of the world to see what they can find. And Louise would love to do that, but women are not allowed on ships. They are considered bad luck on ships, but she is wealthy. So most of the novel happens in 1620 and 21, where Louise has come into her inheritance and she owns a ship. And obviously, because it's a novel that I've written, there are many secrets, there are many uh, murders, there are many stories of revenge. And in the end, Louise Joubert does find her moment to be the captain of her own ship, which she owns. And this is what people called a she-captain, a woman who lived as a man, essentially, and went to sea and followed her own destiny. And this is who Louise is. Can we talk for a bit about the role of La Rochelle, the, the French coastal town, in not necessarily this novel, but its position in terms of the history of the Huguenots? Yes. La Rochelle is uh, a town two-thirds of the way down France on the Atlantic coast, on the west coast, and it was essentially the Huguenot capital. It had been all the way through the wars of religion. There were eight or nine wars of religion, depending on which historian you follow. And the first three happened between 1562 and 1572, and then the remainder happened until finally Henry IV was crowned. And La Rochelle continued to grow and grow. And it was almost, by the time I'm writing about, in 1620s, an independent state. And it will be the target for the Catholics once Henry IV has been assassinated. There will be a siege in 1621. And then there will be a devastating siege in 1628, which will destroy the town and will result in many thousands of people dying of starvation. It's a, a terrible moment in French history. But La Rochelle at the time I'm writing about is this incredibly entrepreneurial, enterprising, practical French city. And it is looking out to the Atlantic and it is therefore crucial in the trade, not just of France, 
with the rest of the world, but the Netherlands and the rest of the world. And many Dutch ships, this is the period of the Dutch East India Company beginning, will dock in La Rochelle and then go on to the Canary Islands, to the Portuguese Gold Coast, as it was called, to the New World, America, as it will become known. So La Rochelle is an incredibly important city and the French king, Henry IV, has supported it and given it a lot of money. And it is, it is functioning essentially as its own republic. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. listening to little atoms i'm neil denny today i'm talking to kate moss and we're talking about her latest novel the ghost ship and kate you mentioned in the first half that henry the fourth was assassinated this is an event that louise witnesses in the novel so tell us what actually happened it's really one of those extraordinary stories in history where bad luck and circumstance has this incredibly big Effect. So it's exactly that moment of dropping a tiny pebble in a, a pond and you cause a tidal wave. So Henry is old by this stage in his terms. He's late 50s, but he feels old. He is plagued by bad dreams. Uh, he has been married to his wife and he is a womanizer and he's been very, very difficult. 
but he's finally decided that his wife will be crowned properly. And this is partly because he is bored and he wants to go back to the field. He misses being the young man that was rousting about and leading his armies into battle. And he's decided to go back into battle. And, that, you know, it's a very, I, I won't go into it now, but there's a very complicated history about where he's going and what he's doing. He therefore decides, having seen his wife crowned a couple of days before, that he will go on a tour of his capital city. And he's done amazing things in Paris. He's trying to change it from a medieval city with very narrow streets. He's done things like, which seems so obvious now, but he has given over two parcels of land, the Place des Vosges and the Place Dauphine, to be public parks for his uh, subjects, if you like, to sit and relax in. This is unheard of, the idea that a king would give over land for the people within a city. He is beloved of his people. He decides to go out and about, essentially to show himself before he goes to the field to battle with his armies. And therefore, he goes in an open carriage. And there is somebody who's described as a crazed Catholic monk, but he wasn't a monk, actually, he was a fanatical Catholic, but when you look at the archives and read the history, he was probably, I imagine he was schizophrenic. He was a very troubled man called Francois Raviac, and he feels it's his mission to save France from this heretic king. And he happens to be there when Henry is going out and about in his carriage, and he is carrying his knife with him, and he sees him, and although Henry has armed guards around him, the carriage is completely open and unprotected. And Francois Graviac leaps into the carriage and he repeatedly stabs the king and he dies. And Graviac doesn't try to get away and he's caught and he's tortured and he's executed a few days later. But Henry is dead. And my family, my imagined family, the Joubert family, they are refugees. They have already fled from Paris as Huguenots in 1572 at the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And they therefore can't wait to see what will happen. They need to pick up their bags and go, because that is the refugee story, that at any moment you need to have your bag packed because the tide can turn and you might not be safe anymore. So that's the moment that Louise witnesses and finds herself suddenly leaving Paris without expecting to with her beloved grandmother and grandfather, Pete and Minou. I think it's time for us to introduce one of the other main characters, going back to La Rochelle, which is where we first meet them, and that's Gilles Barenton. Tell us who he is. Gilles is, um, we first meet Gilles as a young child, and Gilles is a neglected and abused child. You know, one of the worst baddies I've ever written is Gilles's mother. <laughs> and we meet Gilles when they are waiting for the burial of their beloved sister. And there is a moment at which he can decide who he's going to be. And he makes that decision and he goes along with it. And this is part of my interest in the fact that there were many women in the 17th century who lived disguised lives. They lived in different ways in order to not live restricted lives, where women were essentially told what to do and where they should go. And when you married, everything that you owned became the property of your husband, and you became the property of your husband. And Gilles is a character that I wasn't expecting to write, actually. And really, he just came to me. 
And I just imagined them standing on the seawall in La Rochelle, looking out to sea, thinking of a freer, kinder life. And Gilles and Louise, 10 years later, 1620, meet in very violent and difficult circumstances. And then their paths are entwined. And interestingly enough, again, because this is not how I write, I do all of the research about the history. I know the real history, and that is the spine of my story. And then I know the sort of characters that I'm going to have. But then I sit down and I start writing. And I let them show themselves to me, if you like. And what I wasn't expecting was that at the heart of this, there'd be a love story. But when I was writing that and that it suddenly happened, I thought, of course, of course, this is a love story. And that was a wonderful thing. So Gilles was a a really engaging and in some ways challenging character to write, but is at the heart of the book with Louise. And the book finishes on a cliffhanger, I suppose, ready for book four, is that we don't quite know. They do sail off into the sunset, but we don't quite know whether that's a happy ending or a difficult ending. You've already mentioned that um, sections of the book are set in Amsterdam, and this is, as you said, the sort of beginnings of the East India Company. Louise's aunt and her companion have a, a shipping line, and Louise, who has always wanted to go to sea, ends up in possession of a ship, the Old Moon, um, which is something she's always wanted to do. And then, I mean, this is linked to the title of the book, and I don't really want to give away too much no, no. about <laughs> the sort of the latter sections of you know where this ship and the, and the people end up and what they do. However, that section you mentioned in the, well, I was going to say the afterword, but it's at the beginning of the book about some real women sailors or pirates, to be more exact. That some of this is based on. So, tell us about some of these real characters. Yeah, well, they're not based on, but inspired. Inspired by. by. Yeah, because um, I always, all of my characters are very clearly imagined, um, rather than a fictional representation of real people. I don't feel comfortable with that. But when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, one of my favourite books uh, was the Ladybird book about pirates. (laughs) And there were all the pirates you'd expect in there. But at the same time, there were also two women pirates called Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And they were a century later than I'm writing about. So they were late 16th century, early 18th, uh, 17th century, uh, early 18th century. But I was very fascinated by their story. So Mary Reed had been born into poverty in the slums of London, and she started to dress as a boy when she was nine years old because of an inheritance, we think, that would not have come to her, obviously, if she was a girl. And she lived her life as a man. She went to into the army as a man and went to sea in the Navy as a man. And then when peace came, this was devastating for many sailors and soldiers because they had no means of support and they were destitute. And she was on a ship that was captured by pirates and she slung her hook, if you like, to the other side and became a pirate. And Bonnie, different story, born in Ireland, went uh, to the New World, as it was called, with her family when she was 10, didn't want to marry the man her father wanted to marry. So married a sailor and ran away and then fell in love with a pirate called Calico Jack. All the pirates have brilliant names. And they marauded around the Caribbean and they were feared and became rather legendary. And somewhere along the line, Bonnie and Reed met. And so I had that story in my mind. 
And so then I went to research other female pirates and discovered that there were quite a few. Uh, so, you know, the lioness of Brittany, Jeanne de Clisson, um, much earlier in history, who was an extraordinary person who wreaked havoc in the channel in the 14th century. Granier O'Malley in the 16th century. He was a contemporary of Elizabeth I and met her. Saida El Hura, who was the Moroccan pirate queen in the period of time I'm writing about, operating out of North Africa. And then later again from Bonnie and Reed into the 19th century, Chang Shi, who was the pirate queen of the South China Seas, who when she surrendered in 1810, had 40,000 pirates under her control. So I knew that there were enough female pirates that I could be inspired by to create Louise and her ghost ship. And the point about the title of the ghost ship and that story is that this is the moment of the beginning of slavery. But it's not the slavery that we think about a century later in terms of active human trafficking. At this moment, it is people being taken to power ships, so the slave galley ships. And there is an enormous trade in what were called the Barbary Corsairs, who are raiding villages in Cornwall, in Devon, in Dorset, in France, in Portugal, in Spain, in Italy, for Christian people, as they describe them, to power their slave ships. And then there's a tit for tat, which is French, Spanish, Italian and British now looking for Ottoman, so Muslim slaves to power their slave galleys. And this is very different from what we will see in the next century, which is people being, you know, it, it is human trafficking, it's, it's cargo. But what people forget often is that people in the past didn't agree any more than we all in the present agree. And so when the Dutch East India Company started um, and it had a 21-year license at the beginning of the 17th century, there were people who were saying already that using people as slaves was wrong and others that thought and saw that it was profitable. So what I had as my inspiration for Louise's slave ship is that she believes it's wrong. And so therefore her purpose as a pirate is to disrupt slaver ships. And all of that is kind of backed up by the history that was, but all of my story is, is obviously completely made up. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? I would love to. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning. It's very hard. You know, my novels are adventure novels. And so you can't read anything too much because you give too much away or it requires too much explanation. But I'm going to just read from the prologue right at the beginning of the book. Las Palmas to Gran Canaria. Friday, the 8th of October, 1621. Today, I am sentenced to swing. Before the sun rises, I will be taken from here to a place of execution and there hanged by the neck until I am dead. My friend, I am innocent of the charge set against me. My other crimes I do not deny. My actions were measured. They were just. I can still feel the slip of blood between my fingers, still smell the fear. Later, the hate down below deck and the stench of men confined at sea for month upon month. So yes, I confess I have killed, but only ever in self-defence or to protect those I love. Never for gain, never without 
due course. Those were the words I spoke at my trial, but the men of the Spanish court did not believe me. They could not believe a woman capable of such devilry, yet they pronounced me guilty all the same. Outside my window, the sky is growing white, giving shape back to the scaffold and to my cell. The rough bunker fixed to the floor, a blanket lousy with fleas, my trencher and tankard, a night pot. I have scratched my initials upon the bricks, so future prisoners will know that, for nigh on six weeks in the year of our Lord 1621, a woman was here confined. L. R. J. Captain and Commander, innocent of the crime for which he was condemned. But how I miss the lilt and sway of the waves beneath my feet, the buck and the tilt of the ship, the solitude of the night watch and the black sky scattered silver with stars, the endless, treacherous, beautiful, shifting water. So in these last few moments, my friends, I can have a final question to put before you, a question I find I still cannot answer for myself. Is a murderer born or is she made? So I've been talking to Kate Moss. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Ghost Ship, which is out now in the UK from Mantle. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Lovely. Thanks very much, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.